Um, I am going to do my level best to save my voice and make sure I am not overdoing it. I have been at uh, the, uh, the youth retreat breakaway this weekend, uh, and uh, it's been a wonderful time for me. Um, learned a lot of things, was encouraged. The chief thing that I learned was that I am no longer 22 years old. Um, <laughs> it's a little bit harder for me to keep up with some teenagers and uh, teenager activities. Uh, but was a great joy for me, and it was an encouragement. Uh, and anytime you want um, to get tired out, but in the most encouraging and uplifting and hope-filling way, hang out with young people, and they will absolutely give you a wonderful picture uh, of the church and, uh, and let you know, you know what? The church is in good hands in the coming generations. So, um, This morning, we are continuing our series in Hebrews, Jesus is Better. And I'd like to start by reading Hebrews chapter 3. We're going to be, I, I toyed for a little bit with doing chapter 3 and 4 together uh, this morning, but it, it is a bit much, so we'll, we'll break that up. But really, chapter 3 and 4 are kind of one big idea, um, but uh, we'll be diving into chapter 3 this morning and then doing uh, most of chapter 4 next week. So if you turn in your Bibles to Hebrews Chapter 3, we'll be reading all of it this morning. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years, Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they, are always, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient, 
So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the confidence that we can have because of your son Christ, because of you revealing yourself to us in the work and the person and the ministry and the saving blood of your son Jesus. I pray that we would strengthen our faith this morning as we hear from your word. We pray it all for your glory and to lift high his name. Amen. There's a very famous French acrobat and tightrope walker by the name of Charles Blondin, and he became famous in the summer of 1859. He was kind of a little known before that, but in the summer of 1859, he did something that really kind of skyrocketed him to international prominence. He had this idea, and he ran a tightrope across Niagara Falls, spanning from Canada into the United States. And this tightrope was 340 meters long and 50 meters above the river, above the gorge. And what he did for several weeks in June and July of 1859 was he would gather crowds together and walk across And then he would up the ante, and he would do the most ridiculous stunts as he walked across. I actually have a picture from that summer. This was not taken with an iPhone, I'll tell you that, okay? But he he would walk across first, and then he would come, and he'd walk across in a potato sack, or he'd walk across blindfolded, or he'd do it with a wheelbarrow or on stilts, or carrying his manager on his back as he walked across 50 meters above the Niagara Gorge. One time he even came out with a little stove and he made an omelet there in the middle of the tightrope. He once came out with a chair and he balanced the chair and with one uh, leg on the chair balanced on the tightrope. And he did these amazing things and people were just astounded. And one day, it was actually July 15th of that summer, he did his shtick with the wheelbarrow and with his manager, and he came across with the wheelbarrow, and then he said, who thinks I can do it again? And they all go, yes, of course, I do, yes, obviously. He goes, right, of course. Who thinks I could walk across carrying someone in the wheelbarrow? And they're like, yes, obviously, of course you could. He goes, okay, and who's going to volunteer to get in the wheelbarrow? There were no takers. (laughs) You can imagine that people were a little bit hesitant to do that. And yet, they had just said, of course you can. We've seen you make an omelet. We've seen you go blindfolded. We've seen you carrying others across. And yet, there is a little bit of a difference between believing he could do it and getting in the wheelbarrow yourself. And what happens in that gap is what uh, a, a, a Christian psychologist, Michael Novak, called the gap between public, private, and core beliefs. And today, as we dive into Hebrews chapter 3 and kind of start this two parts of Hebrews 3 and 4, the thing that I really want to get at is this. God is calling us to trust him with faith greater than Moses. 
Trust him with a faith that is more than just what I say publicly or what I say and I really think I believe, but rather what my core beliefs, what my actions show the world, this is really what I believe. He is calling us to have a faith that says, get your butt in the wheelbarrow. That's the kind of faith he is calling first century Christians to have. And remember, the whole point of of the book of Hebrews is this idea that Jesus is better than anyone or anything we could ever possibly worship. And remember that in in the first century, the the audience to whom the author is writing is is, uh, Jewish believers. They are well-educated. They're well-versed in the Old Testament. And they are followers of Jesus. And yet the persecution in the late 60s A.D., in the first century, uh, um, uh, you know, biblical world, the persecution was so intense, and there was a group of people called the Judaizers that had a heavy, heavy, uh, let's call it a ministry, to the people, trying to encourage them to step away from Jesus and come back to following their Jewish religion, come back to following the way of Moses. And really what you have here is one big comparison constantly between Jesus and anything else you could ever worship. We've talked already how Jesus is better than the angels. We've talked how Jesus is the best priest that we have, how Jesus is the best human because he is the perfect human. And today we are talking about how Jesus is better even than Moses. And if you think that's a strange thing, you have to remember what the audience was faced with. This task of, okay, are we going to really keep following Jesus? Are we going to live with a faith that we say that we have in pursuing Jesus? Or are we going to go back to following Moses? Following the law? Following our our religious tradition the way that our, our fathers and grandfathers always did. And he sets up this contrast in the early chapters where he's, he's talking about Moses and Jesus and he sets them up as a comparison at first to say like, just like Moses, and just like Moses acted as both a priest and a prophet, so Jesus does as well. So Jesus is representing God before us and representing us before God. And then he, he gets to this idea where he's saying, but Jesus is even better than Moses. And again, he reiterates when we look, come to the end of this first section in verse 6, as he says, if we indeed hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. And verse 6 summarizes that well. And then in verse 7, he jumps into introducing a little mini-sermon that he has in Psalm 95, where he says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and then he quotes, in fact, twice, uh, he repeats one of these verses, quoting from Psalm 95. And there's a couple of things to note here before we dive into what he is talking about from Psalm 95. The first is this. If you'll remember last week, he talked about, wasn't it written somewhere 
and he didn't say who the author was. Here he goes a step further in saying, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says. We know who wrote Psalm 95. There is not a question about that. The author, I think, knows it. The audience knows that. And yet he wants to emphasize this is God speaking to us. This is God's revelation to us in Holy Scripture and affirming that by saying the Holy Spirit is saying this. And the second thing I want you to notice before we dive into Psalm 95 is this word says. It is present tense. It is deliberately present tense. This is not something the Holy Spirit said a thousand years ago when David wrote the psalm. This is something he is now moving and breathing and saying presently. And it already kind of starts to whisper at this idea that he's going to get to in the next chapter about the word of God being living and active. It is now presently active in our life. The Holy Spirit, through his word, though it was written many centuries ago, is still now speaking out this truth into our lives today. And then... He quotes from Psalm 95, and he has this little mini-sermon, and the author does what we see him do a lot in Hebrews, reference something sort of just enough so that the audience knows what we're talking about. And you and I might not immediately know exactly where he is reading from, but rest assured, his audience at the time would have absolutely known Psalm 95. As a matter of fact, many of them would have had it memorized because Psalm 95 is a very special call to worship. It's a psalm that is used in liturgy. Maybe some of you have been to high church liturgy where uh, during some of the prayers, like Matin's prayers, this is one of the psalms that is sung as a call to worship. Even now in Jewish tradition, in Jewish liturgy, during uh, Shabbat Haggadol, they, they'll, they'll quote this psalm to each other. They'll sort of sing this song, this this Psalm 95, as a way of ushering things in. It is often the very first thing sung on a Friday night to sort of welcome in the Sabbath. And we'll talk more about that, about Sabbath and rest and the way that this Psalm ushers it in. Uh, we'll talk more about that next week. But if you look at the text of the Psalm, immediately your thoughts might be drawn to the same thing that the audience's thoughts might have been drawn to when you read words like wilderness and 40 years. Because what the psalmist is talking about in Psalm 95 is referencing this story from the Old Testament with Moses wandering in the desert after coming out of slavery in Egypt. And everyone reading this would have immediately known what he is talking about. But it bears going to and looking at this psalm because I think there is more going on here than what the, uh, what the author of Hebrews might immediately be saying. And in Psalm 95, we see him quote verses 7 and 8, but there's something interesting that happens. We are the people of his pasture. Am I in the right place? I think I'm in the right place. Yep. And the sheep of his hand, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in Meribah, as one of the day, 
as on the day at Massah in the wilderness. Now, if you're reading this, Psalm 95, at the same time that you have Hebrews chapter 3 open, you might recognize there's a little bit of a word difference depending on your uh, version, but almost certainly you, you notice, okay, these words Meribah and Masa, they're in the Psalm, they're in the Old Testament, but they're not recorded in the New Testament. There's a reason for that. The author is quoting from a Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. And the Septuagint, when the authors came together and they translated from Hebrew into Greek, what they did was they took the literal name of the place that was in Hebrew and they translated it literally into the rebellion or the day of testing. And there's some interesting, you know, there's... There's an argument to be made on either side about whether or not we should do that because, hey, this is important. Every Hebrew reader would have understood what that means, and maybe some of that gets lost in the translation. But at the same time, he's very deliberately referencing a place and an incident. It would be like if I said, um, hey, I'm going hiking later. Anybody want to join me? I'm going over to uh, Mount Beautiful View you would all very rightly kind of snigger a little bit and be like, okay, he's new, he doesn't know. We just say Mont Bellevue, you know, or whatever, because it's a place name. Well, the same thing is kind of happening when we reference this place, Meribah, or the same place with a different name, Masa. And what he is doing is he is referencing a story from Exodus chapter 17. And I would invite you maybe to keep a finger in Hebrews And go with me to Exodus chapter 17, because this is the story that he references, uh, the psalmist David references when he is talking to the people, and the same one that the author of Hebrews references when he is talking to Jewish Christians a thousand years later. And in verse 17, or chapter 17, we read beginning in verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of their Lord and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, now, before I read on, here's what you got to know. Here's what has been going on leading up to this. As the people have come out of Egypt and out of slavery, there is a common theme in their response to following Moses. They complain all the time. Even before they have fully left, Moses tries to do something and they go, well, now our workload's harder. We have to make the bricks ourselves. And after they come out, they come to the the river and they feel trapped and they go, Come on, Moses, this is all your fault. We should have stayed in Egypt. Were there not enough graves in Egypt that you let us hear that we should die? And another time when the water is bitter and they say, oh, we're so thirsty, we could just die if there, we should, we should go back to Egypt. Or another time when uh, they have nothing to eat, we need something to eat. And every single time this happens, Moses is a very good mid-level manager, and he goes... Let me talk to my higher-ups. And all that he does, he doesn't address it at all. He just goes directly to God. He said, and and then Moses whines to God, this people you gave me, they're trying to kill me. They're They're about to throw stones at me. 
Whatever they do, and every single time, God provides a miraculous delivery. There's a log that's thrown into the water, and it's made sweet. He parts the Red Sea. Passover happens, and they're delivered. Uh, There is literal food that falls from heaven given to the people so that they can eat. And at every step of the way, God provides. And yet, they're still complaining. Listen, I... I do not know what it was like. I was not there. I have never wandered with Moses in the desert for 40 years. I have, however, gone hiking with four young boys, ages two through eight. And in my own wandering in the wilderness, I have to imagine that they are not wholly dissimilar activities. Dad, I'm hungry. I'm tired. I'm so thirsty. I forgot my water bottle. It makes you want to just turn around, snap, and be like, would you shut up? We are having fun. (laughs) You have fun right now. Like, I get very manic uh, at some stage in our hiking. It's wonderful. God is still sanctifying me. Um, And you can imagine, you can almost feel some of Moses' frustration in the desert. And that is the setting when we come to chapter 17. Let's pick back up in verse 2. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. I don't know what they sounded like. I'm just reading into this, okay? Um, And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord and said, What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hands the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massah. And Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? What's happening here at Massah and Meribah is this time where God is calling out the people through his prophet Moses by saying, have you no faith? I have brought you through. I have delivered you. I have provided time after time after time. And still you're here whining as if I am not going to provide for you. What is the matter with you people? You faithless, faithless people. And beyond this, what you have to know is they are right on the, they're like standing at the edge of the promised land, ready to go in. And yet, because of their lack of faith, they won't do it. I was trying very hard to find a good map. I really enjoy, love maps. Um, But I realized this one is a little bit hard to see. You can see kind of the full trail that they take. And they are right here in Kadesh Barnea when this happens. Masa and Meribah, where they come here. They have made it so far. They have wandered all around the desert. And here now, again, they are still just whiny people. And what the author of Hebrews is saying to the people here now at this time is to say, would you have a little bit more faith 
than Moses? Would you have more faith than the people that followed Moses? If we pick back up in Hebrews chapter 3, we get to verse 12 after he has quoted Psalm 95 the first time anyway, and we really get to the meat of what he is saying. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving spirit leading you to fall away from the living God. This is the meat of it. He is saying, There are people who are trying to get you to follow Moses again and have faith like the people who followed Moses. And he's going, that wasn't so great. The people that followed Moses were faithless. They were complainers. This is your example? They died there in the desert because they did not believe that God would deliver them. And he comes at the core of their sin. He gets right to the heart of it. That the core problem of sin is unbelief. At the core of all of our sin is a doubt that God is who he says he is and he will do what he said he would. And he's saying, you want to follow the way that they followed They had no faith. They didn't believe that God would deliver them, even though he absolutely went over the top in demonstrating that he would. The author is saying, I want you to trust God with faith greater than Moses. So much more so. The core of our sin is doubt. The core of our sin is unbelief. It is thinking, I know God said he would do that, but will he really? And all over scripture, we see this. At the heart of people's sin is doubting that God is who he said he is, and he will do what he said he would do. Think even in the garden where Satan tempts humanity, and he says, did God really say you can't eat? Did God really say And folks, the most tempting times of sin in your life, the time when you will be most tempted to draw away from God, it will be at the core doubting what God has said. And there will come in your life voices that say, did God really say? Did God really promise? And this is where understanding and knowing and being saturated with God's word is so critical Because you can hold fast to what God has said. And when there is a voice in your head that says, did God really say he would never leave you or forsake you? You can say, yes, he did, darn it. Did God really say he would supply every need according to his riches in Christ Jesus? Did God really say that he is the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Because God is calling us to have a faith in him greater than Moses that really to our core says, I'm going to put my butt in the wheelbarrow. I believe that God is who he says he is and he will do what he promised he would do. I have faith that what he has said is sure, and I am going to trust him with faith 
greater even than Moses. And then the author goes one step further as he's reading through. For those who were heard and yet rebelled, was it not all who left and led by, left Egypt led by Moses and with whom he was provoked for 40 years? Because there's something interesting about Meribah and Massah that is referenced in Psalm 95. Yes, it is very clearly a reference to Numbers chapter, uh, excuse me, to Exodus chapter 17, but it could just as easily be a reference to Numbers chapter 20, where they revisit this exact same place in Kedesh Barnea, and the exact same thing happens again, and the people grumble and they complain. And God says, Here's what I want you to do, Moses. I want you to go up and speak to the rock. And you know what Moses does? He says, God, I got it. I've done this before. Clearly, I know the drill. I know what's best. I'm just going to do what I did before because that worked, and so I'm going to rely on that. And he comes up and he strikes the rock the same way that he did in Exodus chapter 17. And God is saying to him, are you too doubting? Are you just as bad as these grumbly, whiny, complaining people? Do you not believe that I am absolutely capable? Do you not believe that I am who I say I am and I will do what I promised I will? And in Numbers chapter 20, verse 12, God says this, And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. And Moses, too, along with the entire people, does not get to enter the promised land because of his unbelief, because of his lack of faith. And what the author of Hebrews is doing is saying, these people want you to follow Moses and follow like the people followed Moses. I'm telling you, let's follow Jesus and do him one better. Moses died there in the wilderness. You will not find that fate when you follow Jesus. Trust God with a faith that is greater than Moses. Believe that he is who he says he is, and he will do exactly what he said he would. Because all of those people that you're trying to get us to be like, they died in the wilderness, and so did Moses. And he is commending them, I need you to cling to Jesus. Follow Jesus. Don't, whatever you do now when it really matters, not believe that God is going to do exactly as he told us he would. So what? What about us? How does this affect us 2,000 years later and some 4,000 years after Moses and the Israelites wandering around in the desert? How does this affect us? I have a few suggestions. First is a little self-diagnostic. I want you to ask yourself, like the wheelbarrow question, do I have a faith that's more than just, yeah, I think you can. Do I have a faith that volunteers to get in the wheelbarrow? Does what I say I believe, both publicly and privately, 
match with my actions what my core, what my actions reveal my core beliefs to be. Ask yourself this this week. I say I am trusting God. I say I have faith that God is leading me in his perfect will. I say I am being led by his word like a lamp unto my feet. Is it really true? Would my neighbors say that? Would my coworkers? Would my kids? Would they say that when they look at my actions? Is what I am doing revealing what I really truly believe in my heart to be true? And is that the same thing that I am professing with my faith? The second is the same, the same practical point that we are going to see all throughout Hebrews as we read over and over and over again. Cling to Jesus. Whatever you do, don't harden your hearts. Cling to Jesus and trust God. Trust God with a faith even greater than Moses, even greater than those that were following Moses in the desert. Trust him that he is who he says he is and he will do what he said he would do. And finally, when I think about this idea, this admonition, to cling to Jesus, to hold fast, to not neglect our faith. I am reminded that these Judaizers talking to first century Christians were not telling them to ditch their religion. They were not tempting them to turn to atheism. They were tempting them to go back to the same old religiosity they had practiced before. They were tempting them to return to the status quo. They were tempting them to say, can't you just keep doing what we have always done in worshiping Moses, in being a people of the Pentateuch? Can't you just do that? And I got to tell you, I think more than anything, if you are a follower of Jesus, there will come a time when you are tempted to just fall back on the same old religious practices that make life easy. But if you are digging into his word, if you are really, truly in earnest, seeking after God's will for your life, it is going to bump up against some of our religious tradition. It is going to call us out of the rut and the path of least resistance in some ways. And I think in all of Christian history of times when there were really big, radical, earth-shaking changes that happened because people said, guys, we've been doing it wrong. I think about things like slavery, things like the Crusades, Things like the Reformation, things like in my own country, a recent history, things my father remembers about interracial marriage and immigrants and all of this that made a, small, a, a minority of believers read the Bible and say, guys, I, I really think God is leading us this other way. 
I really think God is moving us in this direction. And the temptation is not to forget God entirely. The temptation is not to become an atheist. The temptation is simply to stay the course. Don't break out. Don't go where God is leading you in some new direction. Let's just keep the status quo. And clinging to Jesus is going to mean being led in uncomfortable places. And that's why we have to trust God with faith that is even greater than Moses. We have to trust that God is moving us and sanctifying us. And even still in his creation, making all things new. Still by the blood and the teaching and the ministry of his son Jesus. And following him well is going to take faith. Do you have a faith that says, yeah, I believe you can do it? Or do you have a faith that climbs in the wheelbarrow and says, let's go? That's my challenge to you this morning. God, we thank you for your revelation to us. Thank you that you have not left us without instruction or without guidance, both in your word and the teachings of Jesus and by your Holy Spirit moving in us, leading us in sometimes bold, new, and scary directions, God. May we do it all with faith greater than Moses. May we do it all knowing that Jesus is exactly who he said he is, that you, God, are who you have revealed yourself to be, and you will do what you have promised you would. May we have a faith that shows. May we have a faith that makes the world wonder what we got. May we have a faith that makes the neighbors talk, that makes our bosses do a double take, that makes our kids go, I want to be like that. May we do it all for your glory to build your kingdom and to lift high the name of Jesus, we pray in his name.